the business of law seems to dictate that you got to squeeze every drop of billable hour out of a bunch of smart people in order to turn a profit. And the craft of law tells you something different, which is that smart people, creative people need space and need the ability to take a step back to understand the big picture, the ability to rest, recuperate, and be sharp in order to do their best work. We say, all right, we're going to just put in a max. We don't actually want you to work more than our max because our ability to last for a hundred years as an organization depends on our ability to do amazing work for clients who are doing important, meaningful, worthwhile things. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is a lawyer who is a corporate advisor, entrepreneur, and sustainability professional. He is the founding partner at RPCK, a global boutique law firm that brings a unique perspective to the practice of law. By developing an impact investing practice, you don't know much about impact investing, you are in for a powerful ride because this lawyer has been doing work that truly encompasses what it means to practice with purpose. Welcome our next lawyer who leads, Chintin Panchal. Chintin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Sigal. It's so great to see you again and, and to be here with you. Likewise. So I have to say that as I prepared for this interview, I was just really blown away by your work. Just break down for me, what is impact investing? Yeah, absolutely. It's a question get, that gets asked a lot. And there are lots of buzzwords being developed and it's a relatively new thing, so it's growing and that definition is constantly changing, et cetera. But I like to think about this concept of multiple bottom lines, right? As lawyers, we advise clients who have a bottom line. Oftentimes that is a financial bottom line. It's measured in terms of, okay, well, we're going to make this profit or we're going to uh, get a settlement for this amount. Our objectives are determined and defined by reference to this bottom line that the client is seeking to achieve. And in the impact investing space, what we're talking about is a broadening of that aperture, right? This idea that the client has multiple objectives that they're trying to satisfy simultaneously. And that's, that's not terribly new or earth-shaking. That's the practice of law. Clients have complex you know, situations and uh, objectives. So that is something that's going to be familiar to all of us. But here, there is a very strong why that is driving the what. So the what being, what are those multiple bottom lines? The why is this common thread that these are folks who are looking to make a meaningful change in the world and for the positive, right? So that means solving some significant challenge that humanity faces, climate change, poverty, malnutrition, diseases, et cetera. It encompasses investing in solutions to those issues. Sometimes I think of this as a higher goal, but I don't know that that's entirely the right way to think about it because these are all folks who are looking to make money. And this is one of the things that is a common misconception in impact investing, that this is just some derivative of philanthropy, or these are the folks who don't care about making money. So I think that is just entirely wrong. 
I think that everyone in this space is interested in making money and people define their timelines differently. They define the trade-offs that they're willing to undertake differently. They define how they think about success, who the winners and losers are, right? But this idea that you can do multiple things at once, you can build a great business or you can build a really innovative product that people out there in the market are really excited about. The idea is that you can do these things in service of an objective that includes trying to leave the world a better place than you found it. I love that. So I want to take a step back and I want to think about who are the players in a transaction like this, right? You, you talk about the client. Let's start there. Who is your client? Yeah. So our client is typically the investor, the impact investor, the party that says, hey, listen, there are all these amazing entrepreneurs out there, these brilliant companies, really cool products or innovations out there that we want to back. We have capital. We have our own capital, if they're a family office or a foundation, we manage large pools of capital if they're fund managers. Those are probably the most common kind of client profiles for us. When we talk about the mission-led investors, this yes. is what we're talking about, right? Mission-led investors are either individuals or organizations that have capital that are looking to invest, but to do it in a way that is meaningful. Exactly. Got it. And so what does a mission-led investor look like? How do they differ from a regular investor? Yeah, absolutely. So you're going to see a spectrum here. So if you're a family office, it's a fancy way of saying you're an extremely wealthy you know, person, right? You, you can choose to invest in any number of things and in family offices are invested broadly generally. But here, there are a couple of unique pieces or characteristics that make it really interesting. One is that it is closely tied usually to the personality and the objectives of the principles. And many of these folks are looking to get past this idea that you have this left pocket and right pocket. The one pocket is focused on making money and the other pocket is focused on giving it all away. This is one of the really interesting evolutions in finance. This idea that you don't have to wait until you made a bunch of money and then give it away. It's also an evolution of the idea of just merely giving money away. It's not the only way to solve problems. And oftentimes it's not the best way to solve challenges. You can bring those together. So. As a family office, the first piece is it's largely driven by the priorities and objectives of the principles. The other interesting kind of feature or characteristic of a family office is that they don't have a fiduciary duty to anyone else in the same way that a fund manager does, in the same way that an investment advisor does, et cetera. This is their capital. They can invest it in whatever thing is interesting. So if you have the conviction to use your capital to address an issue, you can invest in solutions to that issue and you don't really have to answer to anyone. And so that's a really unique and cool thing. It allows family offices to, to be what we call in this space, very catalytic. First of all, thank you. There's so much there that I just raised so many questions for me. I want to talk about the motivation and the incentive for these investors. So is the ROI purely impact? Or are we actually seeing financial gains? And this is not to minimize or diminish the importance of the impact, because obviously this is so important. But I'd love to understand some of the ways, maybe if you can give me one or two examples that incentivize someone to do impact investing. Totally. Yeah. And I love the ROI question, right? Because it speaks directly to this multiple bottom line, right? It's definitely both in this sphere. But depending on who you are, you will view it from different lenses. So this 1% loan example 
this is a foundation that their mandate is to give away at least 5% of their money every year. They have to just give it away. And so they just need to get capital out the door. But what they need to get back is impact. They need charitable effect in order to gauge how well they're doing because they're a tax-exempt organization, they're a foundation. So their ROI is going to be much more heavily skewed towards weighted, and I would imagine much more detailed and granular around impact that is being generated. On the other end of the spectrum, let's just go to the, uh, the wildly kind of other side, right? A typical client of ours is a fund manager that is competing in the space, both for LP capital, as well as for investment opportunities. And these are folks who are, you know, they typical that you would see right now, or kind of maybe most common is that you would see someone with a venture capital strategy, right? So these are folks who are looking for unicorns. They are looking for 10x plus returns on their capital. And these are folks who are doing that knowing that they are investing in solutions to major challenges that affect millions or billions of people. And if you can find a simple, oftentimes technology-driven solution, that is something that's typically scalable, right? So now we're talking about venture scale, venture strategy. Now, not all problems can be addressed by these, right? So you need the full spectrum if you care about, you know, moving the needle forward on lots of different things that are out there, right? What are some examples of that? Great examples can be found in edtech, fintech, energy technology, and we'll just speak to those, right? In, in education technology, as, as we all know, accelerated by the pandemic, right? This idea of remote learning, the idea of the gaps that learners are facing, there's all different kind of areas to invest in this ecosystem. But without, you know, kind of naming specific companies or funds, there are a, a lot of really phenomenal success stories, unicorn style businesses that have been able to use a technology solution to help address this problem that is being faced by millions of kids around the world, but not just around the world, in our backyard in this country right now. The idea of being able to bring energy producing technology to small individual villages that are disconnected from municipal grids. What can you do to accelerate the ability to bring clean energy to people who are not connected to a grid and are not going to be in anyone's multiple lifetime foreseeable future. Well, you can apply a technology solution. A solar generator is a pretty common thing now. And a lot of what you would see in a camping store, for example, a lot of that innovation was developed in solving these issues in developing countries. There are a lot of phenomenal success stories where companies have been able to take this technology, bring it to millions of people, and combining this energy-producing solution and fintech, which allows people to effectively make micropayments towards the generation of power so that they can use that power. Now, all of a sudden, if you're invested in the company that's developing this stuff, there are millions of people that are making millions upon millions of payments for tiny little bits of energy that are being developed and you have a market-based solution, right? It's a really cool thing to be able to see. And some of the companies that I'm, I'm specifically thinking about are over a decade old now, and some of them are thinking about IPOs. So these are significant economic payout opportunities for the impact investors 
who were looking to solve these problems that they knew had a massive potential market if that problem could be solved. And how do you measure impact? The measurement question is in some ways the most important and tricky question in the impact space. We have a dual ledger accounting system whereby we can measure success along the financial bottom line. But how long did it take to develop the dual ledger financial accounting system, 200 years at least. And if you follow closely kind of ILFR, gap accounting, these are developing fields. There are constant development, change, refinement happening in just that single bottom line. We oftentimes think, oh, well, did you make a profit at the end of the year? Great, but you were successful. Or did you hit it or target IRR? Okay, great, you were successful. But even embedded in that, the question, did you make a profit? There is a lot of complexity around what's above the line, what's below the line, what do you count and how are you depreciating certain assets? And all of these questions are questions that are very familiar to lawyers and accountants who are used to working with corporate entities. Now add other additional bottom lines, right? And think about how complex it is. There is no common system of measurement. There is no common agreement around what you are measuring no common language around this, no common understanding of how you go about capturing and, and recording value and then measuring it or comparing it across this company versus that company, which one did better. So that's not to say it's futile. That's just to say it's challenging and it's at the very early stages of its development. There are many folks out there that are working on this challenge. There's none that I, th I think have emerged as the standard. Now, that's not to say that people aren't doing and I'll tell you some of the things that we do. I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. So one of the things that we try to do is to find alignment up front. Because if you can successfully argue to me that the impact is so deeply embedded in the DNA of this company, the company does well, I know that impact is being had. So just to use a simple example that everyone's familiar with. So Elon Musk's story behind Tesla, he wasn't setting out to build a new car company. That's not what the objective was. The objective was to solve climate change issues. At least the story goes, I have not spoken to so If you agree with the assumption that every electric car that's on the road replaces an internal combustion vehicle on the road, then you are buying into this idea that if the company is successful, i.e. putting out a lot of cars on the road, that particular avenue of impact, you can measure how many new electric cars do we put on the road. Or you can also measure how many, say, that's a pretty good approximation for how many internal combustion vehicles are not on the road. And so that's one way of going about it. And these are baked into the agreements? Yeah. This particular one, this example I'm giving you is one where you can try to avoid the difficult task of building in to the agreements, right? Where it's kind of rare, right? Where you have this ability to kind of find these direct alignments of one for one, right? In fact, more often the case that it's not one for one. That's where we need to start baking in things to these agreements saying, all right, as an impact investor, we are investing because we care about this bottom line and this bottom line. So what are the types of things we bake into agreements? After you take our money, you aren't going to become a completely opposite or misaligned business strategy. I care about 
the education related work that you're doing for underprivileged communities in inner cities. And you aren't going to go and become a golf company. I don't know where that came from. Right. But whatever it is. Right. And does that ever happen to you? I mean, have you ever been in a situation where that's happened? Absolutely. And if you think about a typical scenario for a startup, it's common phrase in startup land is pivot, right? So as you start a company and you have this great vision, you raise a bunch of capital and then for whatever million number of reasons, it's not working. And so you got to pivot, right? And pivots are situations where it calls for a conversation. If your investors are basically saying, yeah, cool, I don't care. Just here's some money and return my money at all cost. That's one thing, right? If the investors are saying, listen, we're backing you because we think that you're going to do these sets of things that are highly aligned with something that we care about, then we need to know that you're going to be doing those things. And if you need to pivot, then that's an opportunity for a conversation. And so that kind of speaks to this other point, which is it's a bit of a different way of doing business. It calls for opportunities for lawyers to build in connectivity and alignment and then this is a lawyer's podcast, so I can go into topics that might put other folks to sleep, but it calls into what you do in due diligence. It calls into the nitty gritty of writing your agreements, right? If it's a, it's a debt agreement, then we're thinking about the covenants. And what do those look like? You typically will have a series of financial covenants and you will have a series of impact covenants. If it's an equity relationship. There are investor rights and investor controls, and you're thinking about redemption rights. You're thinking about the typical tools that an investor will have or a founder will have. Because you can look at this from the other side as well. From a founder's perspective, you're trying to maintain the freedom and the space to build and grow your business in the best way that you see fit. And there is this tension between the investors trying to control you. And I've been talking a lot about the venture and startup phase, but these concepts are equally applicable to heavy duty private equity, to M&A, to uh, global finance and lending. And these are all areas in which we do a lot of work. And therefore, these concepts find their way into all of these different fields or disciplines because there is this common objective of why are you buying this company? Yeah, I think what I'm hearing you say is Lawyers already have a lot of the foundational tools to do these kind of deals. It, it's not necessarily new legal practices, but how you're leveraging these tools in a creative way to ensure that you're moving forward to the larger goal. So the tools are there already, but the fun comes from how do we make sure that all of this comes together for the larger purpose that both of these parties want to achieve? Exactly. And that speaks to us as a firm, right? So I started this firm. 12 years ago, I came out of a big international firm doing whatever, normal, complicated, cross-border lawyer stuff. And I started this firm to focus on this work and this world, even though I didn't have a real idea that this impact investing existed at the time. But when I think about how we recruit, there's no such thing as, well, I'll just go to the pool of impact investing experts. It just doesn't exist, right? And so... Our ability to grow is highly dependent upon the truth of the point that you just made, which is smart, thoughtful, creative lawyers who have experience in any of these disciplines, mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance, venture, private equity, 
debt finance, securities, regulation. These are all disciplines that are fantastic training grounds for the types of work that we do. So take me through that for a second. So I, I, I love your journey, by the way. So you leave this global law firm. Tell me first and foremost, what makes you leave? Yeah. So, yeah, this is, this is the personal side of the story, right? I became a lawyer because I really enjoy solving problems. It's just super interesting to me. And I like helping people you know, achieve things. Those are common reasons why people become lawyers. My goal was to become an international lawyer. It just sounded cool. I was in high school, I think, when I first heard of it. And I was Incredible. like, knowing that in high school, that's <laughs> wow. I, I didn't know what I was doing in high school. So that's, that's right. Impressive. Well, a lot of other very <laughs> you know, significantly less productive stuff. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but I had this intention and through a series of journeys and adventures, I got to this place where I felt that I had gotten to the top of my own personal proverbial mountaintop. I remember this very clearly. I'm, I'm living in Hong Kong at the time. I'm working on all sorts of really interesting matters. I'm leading cross-border deals. I'm doing all this stuff that on paper or in a cocktail party sound really. And I have a immense feeling of emptiness despite doing all this stuff. And that, you know, it had been nagging at me. It had been bothering me. It had been bothering me. It was just like, this is there's something wrong. How long, well, how long did you have that feeling yeah. or were you aware of that feeling? And how long did it take for you to, to pull the trigger and leave? This is like a building thing. It's building, building. And I feel like I had that all, all along. But as a lawyer, and certainly for me, you go through these kind of phases of you get to this big firm and you're this little nobody and everyone around you is an expert and so smart and confident. You have this imposter syndrome and you feel like, oh my God, do I belong here? And then you work through that and you're like, actually, yeah, I can, I kind of know what I'm doing. And then, and then you're like, oh my God, I have so much to learn. And then you get good at a couple of things. You know, you're going through this. And so these are all distractions from that feeling, at least for me. So that feeling may have been there. And I, I know it was, it's kind of like, well, what's the point of all this is really what that feeling was. What's the point of all this? And there is significant dissatisfaction among attorneys. I think it's partially because the hours are crazy. The work is extremely complicated and just intellectually demanding, but it's not terribly rewarding. You can raise first year salaries. You can, you know, pay like coronavirus bonuses. You can do all this kind of stuff. Rewarding isn't a conversation about monetary remuneration. There are plenty of studies about this, but I don't need to look to any of those studies to be able to tell you that this is true in my own personal experience. Once you make enough money to live basically the life that you want to live, anything over and above that is not terribly motivating. It doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, great. Okay, cool. Buy a nicer car or wear nicer clothes or get a different apartment. There's only so much you can do and that countless examples telling us how meaningless that is. Now, add to that the dimension that as a corporate lawyer in a big, medium or small law firm that is engaged in corporate work, corporate finance, cross-border or not, or you know, whatever, effectively, you're just facilitating business transactions. And you get to this very kind of narrow vantage point into that transaction. The way I oversimplify, but I think this kind of captures it for me is what I was doing was helping effectively a bunch of very wealthy people move a pile of money from over here to 
there, and then from over there to over there, then from over there to over there, or between moving the money from over here to over there, squeeze out a couple nickels and keep doing that over and over again, right? You can reduce every corporate transaction to that very silly oversimplification. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I haven't. It's this fantastic sci-fi book. It's kind of a classic. Um, And in it, um, the narrator says something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, this planet has or had a problem, which was that most people living on it were unhappy for pretty much majority of the time. Um, And many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movement of small green pieces of paper, which was weird because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. That kind of reminds me of that quote and the idea that, you know, you could move money from one place to another, but that doesn't really equate to feeling rewarded in your work. I want to kind of be clear about this one, which is there's absolutely nothing wrong with business transactions or building great companies or investments. It's the oxygen that kind of allows the global kind of economy to breathe and build and grow. But for me, the big question was, right, why am I doing this? Why are these people doing this? What's the point? And where is that connection? That's what I think is really missing or was missing for me, the connection to something bigger, deeper, more meaningful. And that ultimately, I just couldn't, I couldn't see myself doing what empowered you to say, I'm not going to go to another firm that potentially aligns more with this kind of thing? What made you say, you know, I'm going to do this on my own? You give me too much credit. I, I, <laughs> I looked around and I said, is anyone doing this, right? Is there, any, <laughs> is there any place that I can go that will allow me to do what I care about and what I enjoy as my job, right? Not as do your work during the day and nights and weekends. You can do the pro bono work and whatever. That's the typical paradigm. I, and I had been doing that and that wasn't enough. I wanted the work itself to be meaningful. And for better or for worse, I, I couldn't find anything. And I am a little bit of a strange bird as a lawyer in that my relationship with risk is a little bit different than many of friends. And so it wasn't a terribly big deal for me to say, yeah, you know what? It doesn't exist. I'll just build it. Let's see if I can do it. Now, it takes a little bit of craziness and a little bit of confidence or overconfidence and a lot of luck and hard work and all this kind of stuff to start a business and and to build it. And maybe most importantly, it takes an amazing team of people around you when you embark upon that journey. And so I think I've been super fortunate. I had people who believed in me. This is part of what gave me the confidence. A great community of people around me who believed in me and said, yeah, absolutely. You can do this. And by the way, I'll be your first client. I'll be your second client. And so our first year, it was me and my apartment in Brooklyn and no employees and nothing and whatever, but I was able to get a tiny little grain of successful outcomes and then build on that and build on that and build on that. I've done lots of things along the way, like joining EO, which is the connectivity of how we got a chance to first through that community. But along the way, I've met amazing and inspiring entrepreneurs. I've had pleasure of working with alongside amazing lawyers. And this idea that RPCK is a firm built upon a mission, right? To leave the world a better place than we, it is to be the home for 
lawyers who live by that credo and want to build that idea into their work. The idea to be able to do that in your work, I think is a bit of a revolutionary idea. It's a very 21st century thing in general, but the experiment of RPCK is that there can be this journey for lawyers and we're lucky that this impact investing space exists and is growing. So I love it. You're in your Brooklyn apartment. You're talking to your friends. Your friends know you, know that you're genuine, you're authentic about this. They want to be your first clients. There's people out there that you're getting to speak with directly. But as you grow, right, and as you start to hire a team and as you want to attract clients who have all of this alignment, what kind of foundational things do you put into place and how does that get articulated to the world so that they know how to find you? Yeah, no, I I love it. So what we try to do, and this is that point I was making referring to earlier, we try to be real about and genuine about and have real conversations around having an impact within our company as well as through our work. The impact that we can have through the lens of the work that our clients do and the work that we can help facilitate and lift up and propel forward, right? That's the work that we do, but it's also incredibly important for us to be as focused on how we treat our people, how we work as a team, you know, what we look like as a community, what we choose to celebrate. Can you give me an example of something like that? I'll give you a a small example, right? In the face of the pandemic, you know, it really brought this particular issue into focus. This issue of kind of minimum billable hours. Here's an area in which there's tension between the business of law and craft because the business of law seems to dictate you got to squeeze every drop of billable hour out of a bunch of smart people in order to turn a profit. And the craft of law, I think, tells you something different, which is that smart people, creative people, especially to be creative, need space and they need the ability to take a step back and they need the ability to understand the big picture and they need the ability to rest, recuperate, and be sharp, not firing on all cylinders. In order to do their best work. And the piece that I add into that as well is that for me, I want to live a good life. I want to have kind of autonomy and self-direction. I want to you know, work with the type of people I respect and believe in. And I want the people around me to have that as well. So what do we do? We said, all right, typical law firm is, well, you get paid X hundred thousand dollars a year and you got to do a minimum of 1900, 2100, whatever hours, billable hours. And we said, all right, well, you know what? We trust our people and these are smart, motivated professionals. And we say, all right, not only is there no billable hour minimum, but we're going to just put in a max. We don't actually want you to work more than, and our max is significantly lower than most minimums because we can build a good business. We can be profitable and we can do whatever we have to do, but our ability to last for a hundred years as an organization, which is a gold mine, depends on our ability to do amazing work for clients who are doing worthwhile things, important, meaningful, worthwhile things. And how can we do that? Well, we need really smart, really capable people with the ability to fire on all intellectual cylinders. It's arrested and covered. So we have tried to do lots of different things. We've done, all right, well, we'll just cover 100% of health insurance so that 
it's not an employee side thing. Or we take vacation seriously and people get to take it and they, they turn their phones off. And, we, yeah. and it's, it's not easy to do, right? It's hard to run a business in, in doing all that. And, and I fully take the point that it's a little bit easier for us because we're a bit of a team. But these are the core values that we're trying to develop. This is awesome. So what is your ideal lawyer that you're looking for? What would you say to them? How would you describe that ideal lawyer? You happen to be a lawyer and really good at do come to a place that says, you know what, we recognize that it's amazing that you do what you do. If you want to take those skills and apply them to situations in which people are looking to actually make a meaningful difference in the world, you want to do that in a way that supports your ability to live a more fulfilled and full life. I, mean, I, I describe this firm as an experiment, right? It's a 12-year-old experiment at this point. But it's a... It seems to be working. Lot. You seem to be growing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are <laughs> we are growing at sometimes at, at like, it feels like breakneck pace. But yeah, I, I would say a knock on wood, it does seem to be working. I think there is some universal truth behind some of this stuff that one can make a difference, a positive impact on the world through their work, not just through their philanthropy. One can choose to work with clients who they believe in and respect and are doing things that connect to that meaning, that search for meaning that we, I think we all have, whether we've been in touch with that recently or not, I think we all have that search for meaning. We answer that in different ways, but one way to answer that is through your work and through your profession. It doesn't have to be pro bono. The other truth I'd say is that you can align the profit motive and value alignment with incentive alignment. That is a doable thing. And you can have very successful outcomes along, you know, both of those bottom lines. That's beautifully put. Shinton, before we go, I want to ask you just a couple more questions. How, if anyone wants to connect with you online, how can they do that? Yeah. Our website is www.rpck.com. My email is chintan at rpck.com and I'm on LinkedIn. So those are probably the best ways to get to me. Wonderful. Tell me, based on everything that we discussed today, what does leadership in the law mean to you? Leadership in the law to me is an enterprise in which one is organizing and leading tigers. Tigers. You got to tell me a little bit more. You have to explain <laughs> that. I can't end on tigers. Yes. When you heard that, you heard the phrase hurting cats, right? Mm -hmm. It's definitely not hurting cats, right? It is organizing and leading, trying to lead cats who have a mind of their own, but they also have sharp claws and teeth and are hyper intelligent and will bite your head off if you step out of line. And so to be a leader of lawyers, I think one has to on their best A game at all times because those lawyers are sharp, capable, very goal and results oriented and sometimes very aggressive, <laughs> you know, folks. And, and those are all attributes of, you know, successful you know, professionals. So to lead that group to me is organizing and leading a pack of tigers. 
a pack of tigers, which you hire and recruit based on purpose, based on the aligned purpose to help leave the world better than when you came to it. And I think that is just such an incredible thing. I want to thank you so much for coming today and talking to us and sharing all of your expertise with us. There is one piece of advice that you can give to other leaders or future leaders that are looking to do the same things that you are doing. What would you say? I would say start with why. Simon Sinek kind of made this saying famous and he's a brilliant guy. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Leading, starting something new, all these different kind of journeys that people can embark upon. You oftentimes jump to what and how and when, but if you understand why you're doing it, it helps put all of that other stuff into perspective. And for me, it has been an incredibly helpful kind of mindset to, to bring to all the things that are before me. Thank you leaders and future leaders for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.